We all have heard horror stories of how a remodel nearly tore a couple apart, as well as how impactful our environment can be on our state of well-being. Remodels don't have to end in divorce, and we can reflect our true selves in our environment with the right approach. Welcome to Psychotecture. My name is Rachel Melvald, and I'm a psychotherapist and designer. Psychotecture was developed as a methodological approach to ease issues that come up in design challenges, as well as a philosophy on how our environment can reflect our highest selves. Each week, I will interview an expert in the field of design and psychology to shed light on design challenges. I will also have a special series called The Psychotech is In, where I can offer help to those in design intervention need. If you're enjoying this Psychotech is in, please subscribe to my podcast, as well as follow me on social media at Rachel Melvald. And if you are a client, couple, or designer architect having a design challenge, please feel free to email me at my website, psychotecture.com, or rachel at psychotecture.com. Welcome to the Psychotech is in. Today on the Psychotech Design, I am honored to introduce our guest, Tom E. Bayer, and he is with the Athentasia Network. And I had discovered an article in the New York Times talking about this phenomenon or a condition of not seeing images. And I thought this would be a really important condition or phenomenon to explore in our episode as so much of psychotecture and understanding the psychology of how we feel and experience our environments and how we can mediate those environments to meet our needs. This to me was a sensory and a neuroscience phenomenon that I think really beckoned us to understand how this operates. So without any further ado, Tom, welcome to the show and thank you for coming. Thanks for having me on, Rachel. Uh, Excited to chat more about this. Yeah. So why don't we just begin by you telling us or just even explaining what is aphantasia and how did you come to understand that you had it? Sure. So aphantasia is the inability to visualize images in your mind's eye. So if I say, think of a horse, you know, Rachel, can you visualize a horse in your mind? Can you see that horse? I can. And what do you see when I say think of it? Like, you know, what what level of detail is it? It, for some reason, and I think this is even a fascinating exercise in itself, it's a, actually kind of a small pony horse, like as if it were like in a primitive or like a cave, kind of just, you know, four legs, the neck, or even just two legs. It's actually 2D, but two legs, the neck, the head, brown. Yeah. Interesting. So you saw that, you created that image in your mind's eye, in your imagination. And people with aphantasia can't do that. They can't produce those mental images. Not for thoughts of horses, not for memories of our past, you know, not for images of the future. And so, you know, when I say, you know, think of a horse, for me, it's, you know, I have the idea of a horse in my mind, but I don't actually have a sensory experience associated with that thought. You know, and it's not always just limited to images. So for some, like myself, it affects all of the senses. So if I say, think of your favorite song, most people can imagine the sound of the instruments in their mind. 
I could maybe hum to the rhythm of the music, but I don't actually hear the sound. Or if I say, you know, think of your favorite meal. Many people can imagine the smell or the taste of that dish that they just love. You know, I might be able to tell you what I like and don't like, but I can't imagine what that might taste like if it's not directly in front of me. So that really is aphantasia in a nutshell. And I, like most people, went most of my life without realizing this about myself. You know, most people will go through, there might be some listeners right now who are saying, wait a second, like people can actually visualize it like that's a literal thing? Because we're not in other people's heads. We don't know how other people experience the world. So for people like myself, we always just thought that, you know, picture this or imagine that was a metaphor and not something that, you know, was was literally happening in other people's minds. And so I was probably just, you know, finishing university when I discovered that my partner at the time, you know, we'd seen a mutual friend at a party and, you know, we'd come home from the party and she was like, oh, you know, Joanne was wearing the same thing she was wearing last year. And I was like, you know, how do you remember what someone was wearing a year ago? And she said to me, she's like, oh, you know, I just see that picture in my mind. And I was dumbfounded. I was like, what do you mean you you see a picture. And the rest is kind of history. Fascinating. So with not being able to perceive or to conjure the image, right, affects all senses, right? So it would be conjuring the sense of smell, visual, as well as maybe a tactile sense as well. It just doesn't maintain in your memory recall. Is that what's going on? Yeah, there's an interesting relationship here between memory and perception. It's a little fuzzy and and even the scientific details aren't crystal clear, but I can describe to you, for example, what something looked like, generally speaking, but I can't, like you said, conjure it in the moment. And same for sensations, tactile sensations. There's another form called motor imagery. So that's the ability to imagine the movement of your body, you know, without actually moving. So as humans, we can produce, most humans can produce imagery in all of the senses. That's the technical field. It doesn't mean just images. Imagery is a broad category for the imagination of sound, smell, touch, taste, movement, uh, and so on. And so some aphantasics like myself are affected in all of the senses. And some aphantasics don't have visuals, but still might be able to imagine music or, or some of the others. I see. So even if one sense cannot be recalled, the other, like you said, vision can be, but maybe smell cannot or the tactile. Yeah, there really are individual differences from person to person. And and we actually don't know how widespread those differences are. Would you say that you compensate or one compensates in that sensory way of conjuring that when there's a deficit, is it maybe like... You had talked about in our conversation earlier or your network that there's the hyper. Yeah, so that's a a word for someone who's on the other end of the spectrum. So it's not necessarily like, you know, you can see images or you can't. There's a varying degree of the image vividness from person to person. So it's not just the vividness, it's how long people can hold on to the image. So some people, you know, might see just a quick flash and they can't hold on to the image. You know, so it's just there for an instance and then it's gone. Other people can, you know, 
pull up the image in their mind, they can zoom in and rotate it and, you know, really live in that space. And so there really is a wide spectrum where aphantasia is on one side and hyperphantasia is on the other side, which is used to characterize the ability to very vividly conjure sensory experiences in your mind to the point where I've actually spoke to people who can project images into 3D space. So, you know, they can actually see someone, you know, sitting in the chair beside them and they've like imagined that person there. So there's really this wide spectrum and yeah, hyperphantasics have have very vivid, almost lifelike imagery to the point where, where some people can be confused as to whether they imagined it or it actually happened. So that kind of gives you the spectrum of possibility. Yeah. And, and you know, as a psychotherapist, I always perceive any sensory or psychological condition or symptoms on a spectrum. So that would make sense. But what comes to mind is thinking how how one really can cope and live in, in some of these extremes. And I would imagine when you caught wind of this inability to conjure the image or remember the the dress somebody was wearing, I would imagine that would be kind of distressing to you. How how did you handle that? Yeah, it's a great point. And when I first discovered this, this was probably back in 2010, maybe 2011, sometime around then. And so the word aphantasia didn't exist at the time. So, you know, I discovered this but couldn't find any resources online. You know, I spent hours and hours going down the rabbit hole trying to learn more and came up pretty empty-handed. You know, there was a couple of articles about, oh, you know, meditate and then you can visualize. And okay, so I tried meditating and, and you know, I, I was no stranger to it. But I tried a number of, of things and didn't really make much progress. And that's when it started to, maybe I started to dwell on it a little bit because I started recognizing how people were using imagery or their imagination in daily life. So everything from, you know, reading a novel and, creating this whole fantasy world in your mind, you know, visualizing the characters, visualizing the scenarios, to studying for exams and, you know, being able to maybe replace something that a teacher had said or conjure an image of, you know, a page in the textbook to, you know, replaying past events and memories uh, with friends. And so, so I started to see how other people were using this in their daily life. And it seemed to me that it was kind of ever present. It was a a fundamental way in which people were interacting with the world. They were using those images in their mind in kind of daily life, almost without recognizing it. And we're kind of, I think, can be unconscious to the fact that how heavily we rely on things like imagery. And so there was a while there where, where, I, where I felt quite negative about it. And I think you can romanticize this idea of how nice it would be to, you know, replay those favorite memories or to imagine, you know, living on a beach. But what happened over time, you know, it was in 2015 when the condition aphantasia was given an actual name. And so I was in contact with the main professor in the UK who had studied a man who lost the ability to visualize. He was later in his life and 
he had, he had a stroke during heart surgery, woke up from the surgery and had lost the ability to visualize. And so they studied this man. They wrote, you know, a paper about his experience. And the professor in the UK, Dr. Adam Zeman, heard from myself and about 20 others from around the world who claimed to have a similar experience, but rather than losing it, had it since birth. And so it's a congenital condition. The professor in the UK used my story in some of those initial publications. I did an interview actually with Carl Zimmer from the New York Times back in 2015 as well. And so this latest one you read maybe six weeks ago was a, I guess, a follow-up on that original story. And at that time, I had an outpouring of people from all around the world who contacted me on Facebook and LinkedIn and over email, you know, saying that they had the same experience. They asked a lot of questions to which I didn't know the answer. And so, you know, that was kind of the start of of the network, the start of a lot of new research. And and what I came to see over time was that imagery isn't, it's not all upside. It can be necessarily, it, it might be a double-edged sword. So for example, I don't know, Rachel, if you or your listeners have ever had a messy breakup and, you know, people who... <laughs> That's what we specialize in in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, and then you re-experience, you relive those negative experiences and emotions and it can be hard to let go of because those scenes replay in your mind over and over again. For so many of those type of stories, or if you have a fear of flying because you just see the plane crashing in your mind, and those images give you a sense of fear before getting on the plane, or you know, we've spoken to first responders who, you know, highway patrol who you know come up on horrific accidents on the road, and you know, we've heard from from those first responders who, like me, have aphantasia and claim that they have a very different relationship to those past experiences than maybe some of their peers do because they're not replaying those things in their mind. So the susceptibility to things like PTSD may be a little bit lower if you can't place yourself back in that moment in those negative times. And so as I started to shift my own mindset about it, as I started to see that it wasn't necessarily all upside to imagination and imagery that's when you know my own feelings about living with this different way of thinking really started to change yeah and that is really interesting that what we know in psychology as to be a diagnosis would be how a condition would impair you like you were describing it might impair your social and occupational functioning of, let's say, taking a test and recalling information or socially being able to reconnect back in an experience with somebody, right, in a relationship, right? So not really kind of conjuring that time you had with somebody. But on the upside, it does thwart any negative reenactments or flashbacks or like you said the trauma brain embodied sense of replaying something that keeps one stuck or even in let's say there's maybe less nostalgia which can be of dwelling right exactly so while sometimes our disabilities, or I don't know if you even call it a disability. Is it even termed that? Yeah, I, I don't think so. It's more a 
all aphantasics might have a different perspective on this. There are definitely some who who view it as a disability and and definitely want or advocate for some type of cure. You know, for myself, I see it more as a a variation in human experience, a different perspective, a different way of kind of perceiving and processing information that is image free. Yeah. I think that's really well described. I appreciate that interpretation and your perspective on it. And as you talk about, because a lot of my show and what I focus in on is our living environment and our design environment and the relationships and how we kind of transform in our relationships and ourselves in our living environments, I was really so humored by the statement of the Stanford professor who you went to at first when you came with these symptoms. And they said, well, Tom, I just suggest don't be an architect. Exactly. So that actually is a good foray into how, as a designer and a psychotherapist, how do you sense your living environment? And how are you experiencing your home? And and how is that effect with aphantasia? Yeah, great question. So a few points here, I guess. First thing I'd say is without the images of the past or future in my mind, I believe that in general, aphantasics have a tendency or at least the potential to be more present than perhaps the general population. So without those images of the past or future, the tendency is to live in the present. And so when when you're in a physical space, the attention is in the space around you, is all in the present. The way I describe my thinking, it's like if I'm not speaking to you with this voice, that inner voice continues in my mind, but without images, the focus or attention really is around what I'm seeing, what I'm smelling, what I'm touching in the here and now. And so being a little bit more present, you could see how environment is as important or potentially more for some, you know, someone might make an argument for. And so I definitely believe in the importance of a good, clean, productive work environment or, or home environment around you. What's interesting, though, is that as a designer, for example, you know, people can, you can, I know some designers who they'll go into a room and they can imagine how it can be reconfigured, how you can change it, and, and you, can, you can do that all you know, in your mind so you can see what, how it might be different before any work is actually done. Right. And so obviously, because I can't visualize, I can't see maybe what a future state of the room would look like. I don't have an image of it. I'm still surprisingly good at things like, you know, knowing, for example, if something will fit in a certain location. So there's still, and there's, it's, it's more an, an intuitive sense than it is, uh, say, a, a pictorial one. One of the very first studies they did you know, with the professor in the UK is an experiment where they asked to count the number of windows in your home. So, you know, without being there, can you describe how many windows and where those windows are located if you were to go, you know, from from sort of top to bottom. And surprisingly, aphantasics can do that, you know, with just as much accuracy as someone with imagery. And so, you know, we don't need those images necessarily to remember or understand, you know, the layout or the characteristics of the home, for example. It can just go through and you just know kind of where things are. 
without actually having an image representation of it. Right. So it's cataloged in the sense of your current sense of it. Knowing like right now you might like how the window shines light on you in this moment, or you know how you like your desk to face. You know what your kitchen how to reach certain utensils. Like there obviously is a present sense of how you like to live and what feels good. It's more about that projecting it and visualizing it. Exactly. But it's more intuition, more intuitive. Yeah, I would say it's more exactly, exactly, and it relies on intuition because you know there's this really interesting thing between Obviously, people with aphantasia have the ability to store visual information. I mean, how would I know, you know, it's my car or it's my house when I see it? So obviously, you know, we have the ability to see something and retain the information associated with those images. It really is just the reconjuring of it. And so highly attuned to preferences and like you said, how things are laid out or where things might be located or anything like that. You know, especially if focus or attention has been brought there. So, you know, maybe if there is an, a question about uh, insignificant, minuscule, you know, detail, unless the attention has been brought to that item, I probably would, you know, wouldn't remember, but that's probably the only case. Now, just going back to looking through my psychological lens and studying Jungian psychology, which Jung very much focused on the symbol and the archetypal image that is kind of in our collective unconscious, that we all kind of have these archetypal blueprints that are in our psyche, so to speak. And just like the horse that came up for me was a very kind of ancient horse. It wasn't a horse that came up as one I would see at the stables, you know, at a farm. I wonder what Jung would say about this template, this archetypal blueprint that is so ingrained in our psyche, you know, that comes up in the dream world, right? So he speaks a lot about the dream world. Can you speak about your dream world and and how, I guess, what is that relationship? Yeah. Yeah. Dreaming is a really interesting one. From what we've heard about half of those who don't visualize while they're awake do have visual experiences while they dream. So when they fall asleep, then, you know, the imagery comes and they'll know that, you know, they had visual dreams, but they'll wake up and not be able to replay them, even if they can remember the content or the substance. For myself and then the other 50%, there is no imagery even while dreaming. So it's strange and hard to describe, but the way I like to describe my dreams is I experience them kind of in the same way as my regular thought, which is through monologue. So it's really through that dialogue, through language and sentences. But me in my dream will recognize and respond to visual cues. So even though I may not have a visual experience per se in my mind, me in my dream will recognize and may say, hey, look at that purple wall. And I'll know that that's what I'm looking at, but I don't actually have a conscious visual experience of it. So really interesting there. Yeah, 
Yeah, that is really interesting. And you you really can describe it and outline it in such great articulate ways as to how you can connect through monologue and through intuition. So that's really helpful for me to understand your inner world. And I think just in general, it is learning how people process information. And I think as a psychotherapist, as a designer, going into anyone's headspace or environment to see how people learn and can transform in their lives, it's understanding how they do process information. And I think we do a disservice of not understanding what people's strengths are in that way, right? I think it's a, a terrific point. And, and for me, probably one of the, the biggest takeaways from aphantasia in general, beyond you know, the, the individual experience you know, of those who have the condition, it really does highlight the fact that we all have, not only that are the content of our thoughts different, but the way in which we process information might be vastly different. And you can imagine, and I'm air quoting and he's saying that word, you can imagine that <laughs> that having vivid images versus just quick flashes of them or having the ability to replay sound versus not having the ability, these differences in the way we process information will have dramatically different ways you know, dramatically different impacts on our daily life and how we retain information, how we learn and communicate. And I always, when I describe aphantasia, I use the horse example for a specific reason. Every single person I ask the question to visualizes a different horse. Some people describe a brown horse standing in a field. Some people describe a racehorse at the racetrack. I've even had had someone say that, you know, I'm visualizing a Minecraft horse, probably because they came off hours of playing the game. And so what you see in your mind is going to be based on your own past experiences. So if you had a white horse growing up, that's probably what you'll visualize. And if I just gave you the one word, the one prompt horse, and then everyone generates a different instance, a different iteration of that horse, Imagine how that same concept applies to more complex ideas and conversations. We may be using the exact same language, but conjuring completely different internal representations of that. And so that's really, I think, one of the main takeaways for me in all of this is that the relationship between our language, between our communication, and our internal representations of those things might be so vastly different. That is really so helpful for not only just as a psychotherapist, but as a designer to be able to really connect with the different interpretations, right? And I think so much of, in general, what I think this speaks to is how sometimes even myself as a psychotherapist and designer, I I can kind of project my agenda and... I think what you describe and highlight really allows us to really be able to connect with your experience, Tom. And I say this now because we'll have to end, but I think it's so inspiring and interesting and, and fascinating the 
continued work you do with the Aphantasia Network. And I, I certainly am going to share the website and any other information you would like for us to end on to share with the audience in the psychology world, in the design world, because I honestly haven't heard much about this. And so I I feel like it's a great opportunity to really expand your network and exposure. Yeah, I appreciate that. And so, you know, of course, if if there's anyone listening who, you know, resonates with the experience, you know, aphantasia.com is sort of the main resource there and, and, you know, people can learn more and get in contact that way. And then while I have the floor, I'll pitch one of the big projects we've been working on, which really is a new psychometric, say like a personality type assessment to quantify these individual differences across all of our senses. Because, you know, we don't have a good understanding of how these experiences vary from person to person. And we don't have a good understanding of what those implications are. So what might this mean for my work, for my life? for my learning styles and things like that. And so we're hard at work at both quantifying that and trying to provide some unique individualized insights. So if anyone's interested in learning more about that, the site for the waitlist is imaginationspectrum.com. Okay. And that would be a different site from the Aventation Network. Yeah, you can get there. Uh, you can link through or you can go directly. Great. And this is part of a research team. Exactly. Yeah. We have a whole team of PhDs working on this, some institutional collaborators and yeah, trying to provide back individual insights based on that that unique imagery profile. Well, thank you, Tom. It's definitely a worthy one. And if anyone is resonating with what you describe, and I think we could talk for so long around all the implications around the senses and how we perceive our world in so many different environments and via dream world, our sensory world, our relationships via the senses and the non-imagining world, I think we could have many more conversations. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks, Rachel. This is Psychotecture by Rachel Malvald with coaching, consultation, and psychotherapy offered virtually and in home throughout the Los Angeles greater area and nationally. We work to ease design challenges to create transformative habitats. Thank you, and we look forward to the next episode and your questions. If you're enjoying this Psychotech is in, please subscribe to my podcast, as well as follow me on social media at Rachel Malvald. And if you are a client, couple, or designer architect having a design challenge, please feel free to email me at my website, psychotecture.com, or rachel at psychotecture.com.